I'm Jonathan Platt, and you're listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast. Nobody makes it to the top alone. Now, you don't even have to try. Your journey to a life filled with purpose and leadership fueled by confidence begins right now. My guest this week is Mark Olson, a lecturer in the English department at Baylor University. Mark's areas of interest include screenwriting, fiction, prose writing, and the varied forms of creative and professional writing. A freelance copywriter since his own days as a Baylor professional writing major, Mark is also a best-selling author and a produced screenwriter with novels and film projects currently in development. Mark is also the contributor of our recently published The Internet Pioneers ebook. This is one of the most exciting pieces I've gotten to read as editor of the Baylor Line, and I am so excited for you to experience it. Here's my conversation with Mark Olson. So where, where did this idea for the Internet Pioneers come from, and how long had you been sitting with it? That is a great question. I was walking through the sub in uh, probably the, well, the late 80s when I was a student here uh, and I, I, was a, I was a senior and I, I picked up a lariat and, and I started to read it and I have this memory of being in the sub and looking at an article that was kind of in the back pages but it was something to do with an emerging national network uh, of computers that were linked together, largely something having to do with the military, but it was merging beyond that. But the whole point, of course, with the Lariat is that that Baylor um, had some kind of of an early adopting kind of a role and that it was exciting. But you have to understand, this was the late 80s, so the idea of being able to talk to another computer was still in the realm of, do you have a modem or don't you? And, oh, do you have a phone line that can allow you to have that connection that makes all those little beeps and whistles? And then do you even have the software to be able to to use it with, you know? So all of that was totally in its in its infancy really yeah and i think i had maybe just bought my first mac at baylor and i think most baylor people know that that baylor was very early on in the the mac world but i remember um i had bought uh a the very first the very first model and i remember that when i went to the store the baylor store the the young the baylor person who was my salesman told me there were two kinds of macs one was the 128K of memory. The other one was called the Fat Mac. It was 512. And I remember still the confidence with which he told me, unless you're running huge spreadsheet programs and massive applications, you're never going to need as much as 512 <laughs> k of memory. Uh, so I bought the 128. So I had a Mac. But even then, I didn't have a modem. That was an expensive piece of fairly outlandish um you know technology that i didn't start using until several years later yeah and so um so i my interest was peaked i wasn't necessarily all that technologically minded but um 
I was interested in, you know, what was a big deal in those days was the desktop publishing revolution, the advent of PostScript. Back then, um, there was a single Mac lab in a Moody library, so a place where everyone could go and use a Mac because very few people had their own. And there, they had a laser printer there, which lay, uh, this, you know, huge machine you know, the size of a small car. Yeah. <clears throat> and it would turn out sheets of, you know, black and white only, 300 dots per inch paper. and But it was a miracle. In fact, I took that technical writing and I wrote my project on the miracle of desktop publishing because, in fact, uh, you know, it meant that people were actually turning out reasonably camera-ready, uh, you know, graphic design yeah. out of their computer. They didn't even have to be trained. And we all know... Generations of bad graphic design came from that, but yet it was still very liberating. And where where was that where was that lab in Moody? Do you remember the location? Um. Oh gosh, yeah, it was somewhere on the first floor, mm-hmm. and it was you would go into the first floor, and it was near the back. Okay. You know, I don't even know if Jones Library was there. You know, then mm, so okay. you know, it was at the back of jo- of, of of the uh, the Moody complex. The Moody complex, and you know, you, there might be lines, you know, of up to an hour. So wow. So for me, I, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. So the liberating aspects of graphic design, of being able to do my own newsletter or something of that nature. Yeah. Um, was that's what attracted me, not the fact that I was some kind of a, a technology wonk. Yeah. So, uh, so I was attracted, and for some reason, that story stuck. And le- you know, years later, when I started to hear about the internet, and you know, of course, it started slow, and then the web came along, and even that didn't become what it is today. Um, when I heard that. I remembered that little map in the Baylor Lariat, and it just stuck. And I never heard anyone else talk about it. And so it just stuck in my head that it's one of these stories, you know, I just had this instinct partly as well, that Baylor had a little bit more to do with the Internet than than people think. Yeah. And, you know, after Al Gore and his famous claim to have invented the Internet, nobody wants to go too far down that road. And so... You know, people left it alone. But for some reason, um, you know, lately, it just, I just started to feel like there was a story there. Yeah. And maybe the pieces of that story had been told in other places, in other venues, under a different narrative, but that they needed to be gathered under that narrative yeah. of, of, of what Baylor did. And see, I'm, I do not consider myself a journalist, and I, I have never written creative nonfiction before in my life really except for an early by the way my very first thing I was ever published was a short kind of satirical piece that Bob Darden published in the Wittenberg door and it was called uh, sex Amy Grant and the quest for the righteous fox so it was about how um, how you know a certain generation of young Christian men idealized Amy Grant yeah so that other than that yeah. I had never written a piece of created nonfiction before. And I, it just, it was a weird thing. Uh, I had become a lot more aware of the Baylor Line Foundation and yeah. the magazine. And the fact that you guys were doing 
really good meaty stories and that you were giving your writers the 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 room to explore them yeah i just thought you know what why don't i yeah. why don't i drop a query just just to see well you you and you and bob speaking of him you and bob really know how to um uh, you know sometimes i'll tell writers like oh you know take to run run with the ball take it out because that usually means that they'll come back with like you know, if if I'd given them a limit of a thousand, they'd you know be a little uncomfortable with it, and you know, but but usually they come back with thirteen, fourteen hundred words, and I've got to say, could you give me a little more? And you know, Bob's first story, he comes back and he's like, this is four thousand words, <laughs> and I'm like, Bob. And then so so then Mark, when you pitched me on this, I was like, ah, you know, this will this will be a good, you know, this 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 will be a good one. Um, you know, I'm, I'm knowing with your, like, you know, with your resume and, and with your creative talent, it'll be a really good read too, you know, and, and then, and then I, uh, I get this email that's, you know, it's John, it's like 36 or 5,600 words. (laughs) And I'm like, damn it. (laughs) But then, you know, but then I, you know, I, I love, I love like, the 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 stuff that i read like you know magazine articles it's it's all long stuff i just think i just read like a three or four thousand word piece on shelly duvall and her retirement and her you know seclusion in uh southwest texas and and i i freaking love those pieces and so whenever this piece and and when people read it they'll get what i'm saying when it gets and it kind of feels like where is he going with this you know and it it starts to go this weird way and it all snakes you know into this very cohesive oh there's the beginning and the end is connected to the beginning too it's absolutely wonderful so i'm glad i'm really glad you ran with this what was it what did did was the first draft 5,600 words, or whatever it ended up being, was the first draft that long, or is there more to this that you were like, ah, you know, snap, snap, take out? No, n- n- no, I, it, it was so, it was laborious to put together, yeah. um, partly because, it, well, you know, it could have been yeah. 10 times longer. I mean, the interview that Bill Poucher gave me on Zoom uh, was, I don't know, two and a half hours long, and Michael and Corp and Corbinera, you know, also like two about two hours. And part of the problem was, you know, these were a bunch of episodic events. They really didn't organize themselves into a narrative. It's yeah. first this happened, and then, then we did that, and that's cool. And 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 so uh, so I eventually kind of figured out how to make it sound halfway coherent and it was already that point when i emailed you by the way i was fully prepared to have you tell me hey i dude i love you but it's got to be half as long you know and i and i would have i would have cried many tears uh but i i would have figured out a way to to well you know know. honestly like the first thing that i was thinking is like you know okay well i okay i've got i've got the two feature stories for the next two magazines at least because I've got to split this up you yeah. know, kind of thing. And then that's whenever I was like, we publish ebooks, you know, we put, we publish and, and it, it is, it is a, a internet. It is a digital focused piece. Why not keep stepping forward into that realm with this? And, and so I'm really happy that it's all, that it's all one piece, one, one piece of, 
of manuscript. Um, so, uh, so you did kind of allude to this uh, when you talked about your interviews with with Bill and and Corpy and uh, Carbonara. Um, you're doing this piece in a post-COVID world, and you're doing this piece almost. I would say almost. I'm not for sure. We're in person right now, but you're researching this piece in an probably almost all virtual way. Is that yes, right? Okay. Yes. What was that? Was that too meta? Like to experience of, oh, I'm using the internet almost exclusively to develop a story about how there used to not even be internet and what brought it together. You know, John, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but that that is an amazing thought, and it didn't occur to me at the time. That's so you interesting. Know, yeah, it, it should have, because, yeah, everything was so, you know, yeah, it, it was via Zoom, which now, as a Baylor professor who's been teaching online for the last... You know, for the last two, you know, year and a half, yeah, uh, is is kind of you know my daily existence. Um, so it should have occurred to me. It's it's almost like it's become so seamless for me too. You know, yeah. Uh, but I did, you know, not only did I have those two major Zoom calls and a lot of phone calls, but uh, somebody got me access to the Lariat, and so I went and researched trying to find this map in this article. And the weird thing is, I didn't find it. I went through every single page. Between even 1987 and, and 1990, and I did not find that article. So that's the weirdest thing, you know. Uh, you think maybe it could have been in like a special section that just didn't get digitized? Maybe a special section, or maybe it was even uh, a, a Baylor mag. Well, there was no Baylor magazine. The, no the Baylor magazine. The quality, yeah. Um, so I don't Shoot. know. I, could it be in? Could it be in an old issue of the line? It didn't seem like it was okay. something like that because it was it was rather crude, you okay. know, and they they had you know always great graphics, so I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, it, that was also a mind numbing digital kind of an experience. Yeah. To be pulling up these PDFs and then you know clicking through them and allowing them to yeah. refresh, so it was a, a really different thing. I did my thesis that way. That was my my thesis was on the. Um, the, the, the desegregation process and the and the desegregation narrative at Baylor and I uh, just honestly out of curiosity but also out of I think a sort of research minded person um, I read every lariat back to 1921 virtually wow. using it like that and now across the room from us all those green books those are the catalog of the line. That's that's every wow. single line magazine up through like 2014 printed. Wow. And you can see there's a big section missing. That's at my house right now because I'm going through it because I got so stinking tired of going through it digitally. So there are those like benefits of being able to catch those pieces, uh, those, yeah. those interviews that at that point in time you probably you know couldn't have got – with with some of the 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 age or or you know the the health of some of uh, the people that we're talking to and yeah about, you know you you might not have been able to get them in a in a pandemic world but okay okay so so the piece starts out it, it starts out with a um a vignette about uh facebook but it ultimately starts on fountain mall and we're right next to the rosenbaum fountain and you paint this word picture 
of you know what if we could see the internet cloud here is what it would look like and here is what it would i want to know where did that idea come from where did that idea of an internet cloud because that i i love that and now i can't stop seeing the <laughs> fake internet cloud when i go places i'm so glad you responded that way because it's my my heart's favorite part um, and uh, and I just wondered, you know, if anyone would, would find that unusual. So that's kind of the way I'm wired, okay? As yeah. a, I'm a novelist, and the whole, if I had a brand as a novelist, I, I, I hate the insistence on brands, but if there was one for me, it's that I like to uh, peel back the veil between the material world and the, phys- and the spiritual world, or now... When I say spiritual, people think, ah, you know, the Lord and what we call religion. But in fact, it's, it's more than that. And, and in fact, I believe that information at its core is non-material, okay? In fact, we know that. Um, the, the core, the founding credo, according to my research for information theory, is that information is a non-material entity, which means that it's, it's not a function of matter, it's not matter, it's not a byproduct of matter, it's something else. It uses matter to uh, go from point A to point B. So uh, all of that to say is I'm always about kind of trying to see things, you know, differently. Yeah. Um, I like to pretend that, you know, what if you could, sp- what if you could slip on a pair of sunglasses that allowed you to see your surroundings in the spiritual realm? And would you freak out because of various beings around you? Would you see, by the way, somebody who's much better looking than you and stronger, but actually in the spiritual state, he's, he's weak, yeah. you know? And a 95-year-old lady who's near death is actually like an NFL linebacker in, in the spiritual realm. So I'm always about peeling back those layers, and I've been on Fountain Mall walking back from my car, uh, from my, between my the, the parking lot behind Morrison over to Carroll Science, and looking. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's a little bit dystopian yeah. and sad to see every single human being walking with a, a, a you know a glowing screen in front of them, and literally, I don't even know how they avoid each other. I don't know if they're using echolocation. To avoid each other. Uh, and I don't know how there's, you know, I've had kids almost walk out in the street in front of my car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, I can't believe there hasn't been a fatal accident at Baylor from somebody because they're literally just walking around. Yeah. And so, you know, I had this weird kind of a thought where literally in my mind's eye, in my imagination's eye, I, mm-hmm. I started to picture all that data. Because the other part of me is I like to look at these smartphones and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're habituated to these little devices. But the truth is if we thought about all the power, informational power in a cell phone, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. It's something out of Jules Verne on steroids. And so – and of course – Familiarity breeds contempt. We have them, and and not only do we not appreciate the, the power that they have, but we spend them to watch dog videos, right? Or people stumbling, and you know, I'm not I'm not somebody who's like upset at that. I laugh yeah, at that. No, I, I chuckle yeah. at human nature, but it, it is uh, it's funny. So so I have pictured, you know, 
if in fact we could see all that information and it's literally, it, you know, just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. That's a that's an important thing for me as a storyteller. Yeah. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. In fact, sometimes when I'm trying to explain spiritual uh, things to people, or even just as basic as the existence of God, I, I remind them that you rely on this cell phone and what it does, but you can't see the electromagnetic spectrum. You can't prove it. And until 200 years ago, you would have been burned at the stake for suggesting that it even existed. Did yeah. that mean it didn't exist? No. Tons of unseen things exist, and we may ascribe quasi-poetic qualities to them. That doesn't mean that they are only that they only exist at the quasi-poetic level. Yeah. They they are inspiring, but they're also very very real. Yeah. That information is real, and and. You know, ask ITS how real the technology is that has to power that all that yeah. information and how much it costs. Yeah. So, um, talking about the students on their phones, I have a friend in in Florence, in Italy, uh, and he's a photographer. And one of my favorite photos that he's ever shown me, I can't remember if he took it or if he was just showing it to me, um, but it's he got uh, the, this photographer got on uh, the third or the fourth floor uh, of a building and had a model stick her head out the second floor and look down. And then on the street, they waited for tourists to walk by who were looking down at their phone. And it is this, it's such an interesting photo of a woman looking out a window down at people who are, in essence, just looking down at a window. And that's, that's what, when, when you started doing all this, this, this poetic... You know, creative uh, wordsmithing at the beginning of this. I was I was reminded of that photo as well of of just this, you know, as as you were you know this otherworldly type of thing that we're not experiencing, but but is also there. So wow. so you 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 talked um, you talked about your uh, your professional life. You're a professor at Baylor. How long have you been a professor at Baylor? Well, I've been a lecturer for a little over a year. I was an yeah. adjunct uh, lecturer for before that because I didn't have my, my master's uh, for almost eight years. I was I'm one of the longest-serving adjuncts, especially full-time adjuncts in, in Baylor history. Yeah. Because I just it took me forever to, to get my master's as a, a guy who's you know in his fifties. Um, so yeah, I've been there, but uh, but of course I, I went to Baylor. Yeah. Um, and my my wife went to Baylor, and you know I'm a I'm a Texas Baptist preacher's kid and missionary kid, so you know I'm as I'm as purebred a Baylor person as you're going to ever find. Yeah. So and in between in between that uh, graduating, you were a student in the in the late '80s. When did you graduate? What year? Eighty nine. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so graduated in '89, and uh, that past almost decade of being you know an, an, a full time adjunct. What was going on in those, you know, those years in between there for you? Oh, for for me, um, well, immediate. Oh, you mean before that? Before the before yeah, I what's, came on. Yeah. What's yeah? What's what? What was your professional life in between? You know, okay. And I love it when I get to ask it this way. What was your life in between Baylor and Baylor? Okay. Yeah, that's great. So I. I uh, I moved up eventually to Colorado and became a freelance writer. 
And uh, so I worked with a, a whole lot of parachurch and, um, uh, you know, some of the Christian organizations in Colorado Springs and <clears throat> uh, worked a little bit for a major corporation and found uh, that I, I wasn't cut out for corporate work, even though I was a copywriter in their in-house ad agency. And so I became a little bit of a bohemian, grew my hair long, believe it or not. Um, my hair today is is almost non-existent and not the same color. I actually was doing, I was uh, emulating the uh, Bono's Joshua Tree haircut. Oh, okay. So not a, not a mullet. Yeah. Okay. Right. But, but a second cousin. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, I did that for a long time. And uh, eventually I wanted to, to, to morph from being a copywriter, which I started my senior year at Baylor. Yeah. By the way, I was the first professional writing graduate from Baylor. I should I probably that. Yes. say that. So that was in my blood. But um, I wanted to morph into writing novels and screenplays. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, screenwriting, when I was at Baylor, I took Bob Darden for screenwriting. And that's one of the... I, be- I begged him all four years to come out of retirement on that class oh. and, and do it. And he never would. Well, he but, was. Yeah. It was a blast. And... So that was during the golden age of screenwriting in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, it's called the spec era. Um, back in the late 80s, uh, college students were, were printing out a screenplay on the laser printer on a Tuesday and selling it on a Friday for $2 million. It, it was happening right and left. Did that spec period happen because of the ability to get to like a, a, a Mac lab and a laser printer? Was that, or, or maybe not exclusively, but is that a? I, I think that might have. Okay, that might have. That's a that's a great thought. I don't know, and that that have quickly went away, unfortunately. Okay. But but it was in its heyday when I came back to Baylor. I actually had laid out a couple years, and I came back to Baylor uh, because I had been an English major, but they added the professional writing major. So I came back. I wanted to do that. And one of the things that was interesting is that Herb Reynolds had a son named Kevin who was a filmmaker. And he had just released his first major feature called The Beast with Jason Patrick. And uh, it, was, it was filmed at Columbia with David Putnam, the, the very famous pro- producer of Chariots of Fire who had come in and would then be unceremoniously booted a while later. And so um, the word was that at, as soon as the Beast had its premiere, Kevin Reynolds was going to come to Bob Darden's class and speak. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I just had to be in that class. Yeah. Okay. So that planted the seed in me to want to write screenplays. And I also wanted to write novels. So fast forward a couple years later, I'm in Colorado Springs. I've been a copywriter for a couple years. And I gradually, um, I kept working on a screenplay with my buddy from, from Baylor. And that was working through. We were getting some inroads. And then gradually I finished my, my first novel. And so I, um, I was very fortunate. I, I, I Actually, my first novel that was ever published was a collaboration with somebody else. Actually, it was a work for hire. It wasn't ghostwriting. The, the yeah. distinction may seem like I'm mincing words, but for a writer, that's a big distinction. My name was on the cover. Yeah. But it was one-tenth the size of the previous one, and it was the same as a complimentary tint to the background. You could you have to hold the, the book cover just right to yeah. see my name. But it was on the cover, okay? 
And uh, that book was called Hadassah. It was the story of Esther. And it uh, became a massive bestseller. It's, it's sold to this day of about 300,000 copies. It was made into a horrible movie called One Night with the King. Um, but that had a $20 million budget and reunited a couple of Oscar winners, Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole. So that gave me some, some walking papers at least. Yeah. So I went on and published several more collaborations, several more novels under my own name. And again, I, I always really wanted to just peel, use fiction to peel back the layer between mm-hmm. the physical and the spiritual world. I kind of wanted to take Christian fiction from where Frank Peretti had left off and take it a step further. Mm-hmm. And part of that was technologically further. So my, I wanted to um, inaugurate a new subgenre, and that is the supernatural techno-thriller. So imagine Jason Bourne, but with angels and demons. And so I, I actually published a couple of novels that are a step in that direction. Yeah. And they were mid-list. So, uh, they were not extremely successful, but they were successful enough. Uh, but then, oh gosh, I had a kind of a crash and burn career-wise where I, I was on the receiving end of some capricious corporate policies. I'm just going to put it that way. And um, really, really, uh, I, I, I needed to leave Colorado. I wanted to leave. I wanted to restart. And so my roots are in Central Texas. My wife's roots are in Central Texas. We moved back to Temple. And because we're that close to Baylor, we just started to to gravitate back around Baylor. And it was Bob Darden, actually, who said, hey, why don't you write me a letter saying you'd like to teach at Baylor? Yeah. And and he he knew that there was actually a vacancy going on, somebody going on sabbatical. And so I was able to come on board and start teaching, and and just uh, it built from there. And and it's revolutionized my writing, by the way. Nothing... You know, if you want to learn a massive subject in depth, teach it for a while. Yeah. Especially in a workshop environment like creative writing, where you're not just teaching it as an academic level, uh, just the recitation of facts, but you're actually putting it into practice and then field testing, you know, approving yeah. and... and what, um, what many fields would call a, a, a clinical appreciation. There you go. Yeah, not yes. just a theoretical. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. so... So okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about writing process because that was that that's just so interesting to me. What I hate the question, what is your writing process? So let's start in like a different thing. What's that first thing you do when you sit down to write? Well, it's it varies dramatically based on what I'm writing. Yeah, you know because I do a lot of copywriting, but I definitely like to free, radically free write. So yeah. I like to have an open. Uh, amount of paper sometimes it's even a whiteboard but a lot of times it's just an open notebook and I'll get two spreads of paper and I will start writing just things that are that are just bouncing around my head yeah it's very important for me to do that uh, soon after whatever the trigger was an interview uh, a phone call and the the initial burst of ideas yeah and so I start writing them and I don't write them I don't follow the lines mm-hmm. I just treat them as little visual blocks because I see them in my head as as these blocks of data I could tell you what color they are it's yeah. kind of weird but I I do that you know and then you know then after a while I might start to draw a circle and say hmm to draw an arrow to the next one and say there's a there's a logical you know, relationship, a causal almost yeah. relationship between this one and that one and start to seeing. 
and pretty soon I'll get a you know an an outline. Now, if it's a screenplay story, I like to I have a really interesting process. It goes from yeah. literally six, uh, well, six big moments. Somebody said that a a movie is six a half dozen big moments, and everything else is what feeds those moments and gives them their uh, their stature and their their resonance. Okay, yeah. so you start with that. And almost like you're having a mental trailer, like yeah. you're building the trailer. Yeah. You throw them down, and then you start to turn them into a list of sequences, which yeah. a sequence in, in, in screenplay parlance is a grouping of scenes. Because, um, you, you know, scenes are the building block. But So a sequence is like he escapes from prison, you know. Um, so you start turning that into a list of maybe 20 sequences. Yeah. Then you start building that out into the, the their their uh, scenes that make them up. Yeah. So I do variations of that on articles and pieces of creative writing. If there's a lot of structure, I could see, inv- see that in this. Now, really? now that you're talking about, I can see that that structure of you know I I don't I don't think that I could say that this article is is six key scenes with sequences in between. But I can definitely see that, you know, this is a different scene, like kind of writing. And, and I think that I write in a lot of that same way, too. I had, I had uh, um, uh, someone tell me one time, because my, my, my big worry is always I, I'm horrible at transitions. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't write you a transition, you know, to get out of a paper bag. Like, I'm awful at it. And I had someone tell me, just don't write them. Mm-hmm. Just put three dots and move on, you know. That's and, that's great, and and it's it's so so maybe it is that I think in scenes and you know less in that 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 transitory more more on the you know what what I might call like an English paper style writing yeah first second third topic final, sentences to, topic sentences yeah. that kind of thing so so now that you're mentioning it there there is there's there is that in in this article there is a it's a scene. And sequences that follow it, and the sequences are are not all um, uh, linear, and and they they all are telling the same story, even if they're not all, you know, on that left brain side following yeah. an, an outline. So so when you're into the meat of like like every day, do you have a time that you like to write? Like, are you a morning writer, afternoon, writer, or are you somebody um, that just sits morning, down? okay, and, yeah, and then late at night, yeah. So when when you're really when you're really going, are you following that that outline of sequences and scenes, or are you just just trying to get what's in your mind out? Um. I'm either do, following that or trying to formulate it and find okay. one as I write. Yeah. Again, this article is a first for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, okay. And, so, so I don't. I, 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 that's where I was going with this. Was yeah. I was going to ask how was how was that different? How was that going from your normal? You know, whether it's a routine, a ritual, or just something you're attempting to follow. Yeah. And then you're doing something, you know, that is still the same industrial output. But is a totally different animal. How did that feel? It was it was very different um, because again, the the Poucher interview and the uh, the Corpy and Carbonera. I interviewed them together. Oh, that's cool. And I that was uh, great. and they were yeah, that was that was really awesome. Uh, but you know, it, it emerged as a long list of incidents, 
And uh, the one thing I didn't want to do was to be episodic. So episodic is, is just when a story doesn't seem to have a through line. You know, when you, mm. it just seems to be a bunch of episodes that aren't connected with each other. Yeah. The very first time uh, my screenwriter partner, friend, and, and I got major feedback from, from a, a, somebody on a screenplay, they said that our script was episodic. Okay. And it, so that stuck with me, okay? So there was a real danger here of just saying, well, here's everything that Baylor had to do with the internet. Here's item one on that day. Here's item two on that day. And just give this long list. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, getting those right is important on the macro level. Uh, I'm sorry, the micro level. I mean okay. the minute okay. level. Yeah. But on the macro level, I want there to be a meta narrative. Yeah. I want there to be a theme. And so it was very important for me to find it. Now, at first, that theme was just, hey, uh, Baylor made a mark on the internet, bet you didn't know, kind of thing. And then gradually, as I started to, to picture, and actually as I started to picture Fountain Mall, you know, in, 19, in, in 2019, it's these kids walking. But you know what? From the vantage point that I saw Fountain Mall in my mind's eye, you couldn't look and see the same view today because of all the tents. And that got me started. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I realized I have a beginning point and I have an end point And there is a very real character arc. Yeah. And a character arc that really works is not just the character started at point A and ended with point B. It's that literally there was a need that emerged and that need got met. And when I realized all of a sudden... As I was tuning into Zoom to, for my classes, I realized that the internet, you know, had gone from something that Baylor must have just hated to pay for because it's an unfunded liability. It's an unfunded mandate. Yeah. Um, now, all of a sudden, the internet is everything. Yeah. And how ironic that people who built the little tiny components of that functionality are still around you know, at the periphery of Fountain Mall, in Castellaw, in yeah. Mars McLean, and, you know, in the computer science building. And and now, having to adapt to a world, you know, I should say not, not now having to adapt to, a year ago, having to adapt to a world that only could exist and survive and ultimately thrive, you know, coming out of, you know, I'm going to knock on wood somewhere, coming out of a COVID world, yeah. you know, we would not have been able to do what we are without the contributions of, of, yeah. these, of these men. Our first ebook that we did was actually on the 1918 flu, um, oh. and it came out about a year ago at this point. And so it's very fun and interesting to me to do that ebook as the first ebook and this one as a year later of wow. liter literally a hundred years difference between the two and all of the, the the differences between the two you know pandemic experiences but, but you know also the change that comes in those last 20 you know 30 years at the end of that hundred year spectrum so wow so I... how so how has your life as a professor, you know, how has that been navigating this new world over the past year? Well, that's a very nuanced uh, uh, answer because 
you know, it's it's been great and it's been not great. Um, yeah. So I have multiple comorbidity factors for COVID, and so the university very graciously said you can teach from home completely. Yeah. And so there's been days when I thought, you know, I have this great job. I mean, university professor, these are good jobs. And I'm sitting at home in my sweatpants, you know, typing away in my little home office. Yeah. And, you know, so that aspect of the technology is is really great. And having more control over my schedule, not having to drive 45 minutes twice a day to, to Waco, Texas, all that's. Um, but then, of course, you have... You know, over time, the sense of cabin fever, the sense of isolation, um, especially the asynchronous classes where there's no Zoom and my students are nothing more than an email address and, you know, some blips on some a screen. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's become very worrisome. And, you know, I, I, we just had our, yesterday, I was back on the Burleson Quadrangle for our annual English department picnic and just to be at Baylor under trees in the middle of the campus. Are you an uh, introvert or an extrovert? Oh, definitely an extrovert, okay. which is not a good thing for a writer, by the way. No, you know, no, it's no. the worst. I, I, I hate to say this, but like I thrived in March and April last year. I'm, I'm a huge introvert. Okay. I, I love being alone. And so I don't know how y'all made it through. Like, yeah, I don't either. I'm not I don't sure. Know I, what, I don't know what cabin fever is. <laughs> like, so when you said it, I was, oh, oh yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so how, um, how do you think you feel uh, about having written this article um, about the internet? You know, we already talked about the meta ness of writing it about you know the internet via the internet to be distributed via the internet how do you, how do you feel at the end of this journey you know how do you feel about this piece well once again you're you're putting this in a context that i hadn't even arrived at yet so <laughs> let me just I, i'll just put it this way that's all i've been able to think about since we started working on this how yeah how interesting yeah because until recently you know we were thinking this was going to come out in a physical form yeah and so now we're looking at something entirely different, and um, you know it's 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 really cool. Um, part of me wishes I could you know march home with something physical yeah. and say, look here, you know, look, honey. Um, but but at the same time, the power of the internet is yeah. just so enormous. The you know if. If you were doing it physically, you'd have to say, okay, what's our print run? How many copies can we put out? How do we get yeah. there? Who will see it and who will not see it because they can't get to it close? None of those limitations are there. This can yeah. be propagated, you know, go viral in yeah. an instant. Um, so it's, uh, which, it's which, which I, th I think is another meta depth of it is because in the piece you talk about how the Baylor alumni – family broke the internet so many years ago yeah. and how how fun is it that we're now doing uh basically what is a radio program that we're going to distribute over the internet you know to you know some of those same people that broke the internet 20 something years ago wow yeah yeah and and today my kids uh, don't even really know what radio is they <laughs> they know stations they know the idea yeah. of there's a particular spot somewhere, but yeah. it's really to them more like a website. 
you know, the idea of a dial, the any of that stuff um, is is foreign to them. I would I would be in in masscom and talking about the internet because technology is a hobby of mine. Like I I absolutely love it. I you know taught myself how to uh, code my MySpace profile back in the day, kind of thing. Yeah, wow. yeah, and and it was it was so uh, fun and also disheartening to to make a dial up joke and just crickets. <laughs> And to go, okay, hold on. How, do, how many of you know what dial-up is? You know, and one or two of them, you know, hands go up. And like, how many of you have ever used dial-up? You know, and in a hall of 301 hand, you know, like actually stay stay raised and say that they used dial-up. How, how many yeah. of you even plugged in a cord to get internet? Yeah. Yeah, I, gr- I grew up out in the middle of, of nowhere. We used dial-up until I was in high school. You know, I, I mean, like... Yeah. Yeah, and if your brother was on it and uh, and you were mad at him, you could pick up that phone and knock him off. Unless you were at those those real posh families' houses where they had two phone lines. You know, one was the dedicated <laughs> internet line, and one was the house phone. You know, yeah, that's like, the rich people the, that the, have. Yeah, wow. The the, the 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 high cotton, you know, kind of feel to it. It's like East Texas. Mark, what do you want when people read this? Uh, What's that thing you hope people walk away with? Well, I, um, I'd like for them to know that this thing that is becoming such a, big word, ubiquitous part of our lives, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, this little old institution that we can sometimes, uh, you know, uh, treat as just a, you know, I don't know. You know, it's it's a warm fuzzy or something. You know, Baylor. Uh, that that in fact, this institution had you know had a huge role, and that there were people who um, who've had a profound impact. I, I wanted to celebrate these people, really. Yeah. You know, that's the the narrative, uh, because you know they're they're getting a little bit older, um, and you know I don't. I'm a, you know Bill Poucher is is a little you know. Uh, He's still very much there, but uh, sure. he's been here. You know, they've been here a long time, and yet I don't see people understanding exactly what they contributed. I'd like for the young people walking up and down the, the mall with yeah. the cell phones to realize, hey, that that dude, you know, with the, the the fuzzy blazer over there walking towards his office, he's actually responsible for the fact that I can look at high definition television. Which used to be an insane innovation, and now I can not only watch it on my handheld phone, I can make it on my handheld phone, yeah. and I can send it to everybody on Earth in a split second. All of that is stuff that was made within 200 yards, not made, sure. but contributed to within 100 yards of where I'm standing. I, I think that's something that people ought to know. I just literally, I just thought people ought to know this about yeah. Baylor and about the people of Baylor. Yeah. And okay, last last question. If your you know if yourself in 1989 was going to Baylor right now and experiencing the world as it is, and you saw that kid, that young that young Mark, what would you want that young kid to know about your future, about the things that you have learned professionally? What would you want to give back to that student? Just life lessons in general. Yeah, I mean, if that's yeah. if that's how you want to go, it, it well, it, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I, I would have talked to him about time management. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I have a big imagination that tends to, you know, which does not lend itself to meeting deadlines and, you know, just being a professional writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would, uh, oh my gosh, that's, you know, that's a really great question. Um, I would have encouraged him to just um, to be kind to himself when he, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't meet his own expectations. And um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, you know, some of that is spiritual too. You know, I would have I would have talked to him about you know the reality. Some of the things that I've since learn about the reality of the spiritual realm, you know, yeah. just to, to take that seriously and, yeah. and to not deal with it as an abstraction, as a possibility, mm-hmm. but, you know, I call it maybe land, which yeah. is where I used to live. Like may, I think this spiritual stuff, this unseen realm yeah. is real. Um, and I want it to be real. And logically I can make a case for it being real, but it's, is it re- am I living as though it's real? So I would have liked to have lived as though the you know the things I knew were real, um, and trusted in that in a little bit more. So I'm sounding like my dad now, but uh, you know, I, I, I respect my dad, so that's not a negative thing. Yeah. But but I am that dude in the Geico commercial who's becoming his parents. So I like it. I like it. Well, Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, John. It's been a total pleasure from beginning to end and a real honor. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks. I'm Jonathan Platt, and you've been listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast, brought to you by Baylor Line Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you haven't, hop on over to wherever you're listening to this and follow, leave a rating, and a review. It really does help. Join me next week for another Direct Line Conversation. Thanks for listening.